Um, my name's Nick. Uh, believe it or not, we're just getting started. So if you need to stretch, you know, you need to do some jumping jacks, feel free, because we're about to get uh, into uh, the Gospel of Luke here this morning. If I haven't met you, uh, love to say what's up after the service. But for now, uh, let's open up our Bibles to Luke chapter 8. And uh, we're going to be beginning there in verse 40, reading all the way down to verse 56. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Uh, we'll get one to you. If you don't own a Bible or you pledge to give this Bible away to a neighbor, friend, whatever, keep it. Uh, the more that we can uh, spread God's, God's word, the happier we are. So it's our gift to you. But Luke chapter 8. We're going to read a, a bit of a larger um, story here, 16 verses, and I'll pray, we'll, we'll dive in. It says this, Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. Falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age. She was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Verse 49. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him, except Peter, and John, and James, and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Let's pray, guys. No doubt, Lord, in this room, some people come desperate. No doubt, Lord, in this room, everyone is more desperate 
than they're even aware for you. God, you give us these stories in scriptures where desperate people find healing, find revival, find living water, find salvation in you. We don't believe that we're reading from a dead book stories of a bygone time. We believe that as we open up your scriptures, your holy word, that your spirit moves even here in this room today. That you speak even here in this room today. That you can be touched by faith even here in this room today. And that power can go out from you to us. Even now. God, that's my prayer. Don't let me get in the way of what you would want to do. Jesus, I pray that people in this place would meet with you today. And would find the help they so desperately need. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, if you noticed, and I know sometimes first time, first time through, uh, reading, uh, things are a little bit tougher to grasp. I've, I've sat under others teaching, uh, and I realize, yeah, sometimes it moves quick, and you're like, wait, I, I didn't even catch the story. I need to read it again. I've been soaking in this all week, so it's not quite fair. But I wonder if you noticed, it should have been quite simple to see, there are actually two miracle stories in this text. You got Jairus and his daughter, and then you have this woman and the flow of blood. This, this, um, I get this discharge of blood. Now, I did not initially think uh, when I was prepping for this that I was going to combine the two stories. If you know me, you know that it takes me three weeks to get through a couple verses. So what am I doing with two separate incidences here and bringing them together? Well, I think actually upon further reflection and investigation, I was like, man, there's just some insight that comes out when you keep the stories together that I didn't want to lose. I want you to see it as well. It's largely going to come in in the conclusion of this sermon. And really, this insight is why I, I uh, titled the sermon there, if you see it in your handout, the way that I did. Namely, peace to those far off and near. You'll hopefully understand what that means more fully by the end. But as we move through these two stories, our text here, I think four questions are going to start to emerge as we consider ourselves in all of this. And it's these four questions that I'm really going to use to organize my thoughts here this morning. First, am I desperate? Second, am I touching? Third, am I hiding? And then fourth, am I waiting? So we're just going to dive in. First, am I desperate? Um, Jesus, if you recall from last week, he's just finished up on kind of the, the east side of the Sea of Galilee, Gentile region, healing the demoniac, sends the brother back to you know return and declare all that God's done to his people. And then Jesus and his boys get in the boat, and now they are headed back 
uh, over to the west side, uh, more, you know, Jewish Jerusalem area, Galilee, um, there. And the crowds, we're told, are waiting for him. You see that there in verse 40. The crowds over there in the Gentile region, get out of here. We don't want you around. Comes back to his, you know, turf. Everyone's waiting. Crowds, throngs, just waiting. We're first introduced to this man, Jairus. But then in the middle of Jesus' attempt to help him, a woman breaks into the scene. And this woman, like Jairus, is desperate. Uh, Luke tells us there in verse 43, if you see it, she had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. Now, I want to break this down with you for a minute, because a lot of times um, stuff is lost in translation. And when we don't sit in, sit in the scene, uh, we can miss some of the profundity of all that Jesus is about to do here. So think with me about her desperate state. We can kind of come at it from a number of angles. Physically, she's got this discharge of blood or, or, or flow of blood in the Greek, probably referring to some sort of uterine hemorrhage. It's almost as if she was like in this perpetual state, uh, it would seem, of, of, of menstruation, something like that. So you're talking about a woman here who is physically sick, anemic, weak, perhaps even perpetually in some sort of pain. And we could come at this financially because Luke goes on and says that she had spent all her living on physicians. I mean, she bankrupted herself trying to find someone who might be able to fix her. Like, if not you, maybe you. If not you, she just went through the whole phone book. Who can help? And came up with nothing. Bankrupt financially. We could come at this religiously. So she had a discharge of blood. Well, according to Torah and Leviticus 15, verses 25 through 30 in particular, this would have rendered her unclean. She was perpetually in a state of uncleanness before God, meaning she can't participate in the worship of the synagogue. She can't participate in the worship of the temple. She remained perennially an outsider. With kind of the emblem of, 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 of sin and unholiness just in her body. <laughs> Flow of blood. You could come at this from the perspective of, you know, the social perspective because this ritual or these, this kind of religious uh, stuff has social implications. The uncleanness that she had uh, before God in Israel meant that now, man, no one can touch this girl. She can't touch them either. Because her uncleanness would spread. In fact, no one can touch things that she's touched. Not just people, not just touching her, but even the couch that she sat on or the bed that she lay in. 
just got to stay away. Um, some commentators, you know, say, well, it's probably if she was married, which most women, even to survive there in Israel, needed to get married. If she was married at one point, chances are she's divorced by now. Because you got to think that dude can't even put his arm around her. He can't even, you know, uh, sit next to her on the couch or in the bed. He, he certainly cannot be intimate with her. And so 12 years in, I mean, if the guy did stay with her, everything had to change. I mean, even though they may be living under the same roof, there is a distance necessarily. They've had to keep from one another. It's, it's brutal. She is... Uh, the definition of social outcast, you might say. So physically broken, financially bankrupt, religiously unclean, socially outcast, and then finally, this just leads to one final aspect, that's, that's emotionally. You gotta imagine that there are a number of things, a number of effects this has on you emotionally. Um, for one thing, the, the shame that you would feel, knowing that, man, if, if anyone even gets near me, my filth just spreads to them. The, 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 yeah, the mess that I am just spreads. You gotta think also that there was, uh, after 12 years of this, incredible despair, hopelessness. I mean, 12 years in, and we read there um, that she could not be healed by anyone. But Mark takes this even further in his account of the story. Mark 5 verse 26 when he says, man, after all of this, she was no better. After all her pursuit with physicians and all of her money spent, she was no better, he says, but rather grew worse. So you're talking about a woman who is utterly desperate. Okay. She's so desperate, it seems, that she's willing to make a run on this guy she's heard about named Jesus, even if it means she's got to get through the crowd, push through the crowd. She's not supposed to be in the crowd. <laughs> but she hears, maybe there's one more physician out there. She hasn't tried. Maybe the great physician can do something about this worsening situation. So, man, this is a daring move. This is a bold move. This is a last-ditch sort of move. I got one last shot. There, I'm going for it. Now, we can and should learn from her in um, this text because... Really, the poverty, the helplessness, the brokenness, the uncleanness of this woman, it is just a reminder, it is a picture for us of our state before God because of our sin. That's why I opened praying the way that I did. I am aware that we are more desperate than we even know. We look at this woman, we go, okay, yeah, I get that. And maybe some of us go through some hard times, you know, where it kind of awakens us a bit to our desperation for Jesus. Maybe maybe that's kind of been your story. You go up and down, 
depending on circumstances. When things are going great, I could skip Sunday. I could skip devotions. No big deal. When things go rough, when things get rocky, I'm in church. I'm desperate. But this woman and and the Bible would tell us, man, this is always the case. The uncleanness that we have, the desperation that we have for grace. I mean, it doesn't stop on your good days. I was thinking in my preparation of this, of of what Jesus says against the devil when he's in the wilderness. He says, man, man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In other words, if God doesn't speak, I die. If I don't have his words, his presence, if this thing breaks, I die. I live on that. And so we come to church more desperate than we even know this morning for the grace that God is so ready and willing to give to us in his son. Are you? Am I desperate? Second question. Second question I want to ask. Am I touching? Am I touching? So this uh, desperate woman makes a run on Jesus. And we're told there in verse 44 that she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately, we read, her discharge of blood ceased. And then in verses 44, or I'm sorry, 45 and 46, we get this interesting exchange between Jesus and Peter, right? And I wanted to, I wanted to focus your attention here for a moment. Because uh, Jesus asked this question, Who was it that touched me? Who was it that touched me? And Peter, talking to Jesus at this point, finds it almost laughable. Because like I said, the crowds are pressing in. It's like, in the Greek there, the idea is choking. The idea is choking, or there's another word used later. That's the idea of like pressing grapes. That's what's going on. Like, Have you ever been to Disneyland in the holiday time? You know, and you're waiting in line or at the end after the parades. Like, that's what it's like. And so Peter looks at Jesus. He's got, who touched you? Are you kidding me? Everyone is touching you. He says, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. You're talking about who touched you. And then verse 46, Jesus clarifies. He said, someone touched me. For I perceive that power has gone out from me. In other words, there is a difference, Peter, between pressing in on me and truly touching me. And so we got to do this, I think. Um, We need to ask ourselves where we're at, why we're even here this morning. Some of us probably come in like the crowd, just pressing in, but not touching. We're here because we're interested in Jesus, because we think that he's kind of important, because it's what we were raised in, because maybe mommy and daddy gave me this look, and I don't want to be on their bad side for the rest of the week, so I'm here. 
But then we got to step out and we got to go, man, okay, so I'm here, but am I really here? Or to use the language of this text, I'm pressing in, I'm around Jesus, but am I really, truly touching him? Because there is a difference. Do you get that? There is a difference. And it's taking place not externally. And that's the whole issue. That's why Peter finds it laughable. It's not happening externally. You can't see that. It's something that's going on in here. That you can be all surrounding Jesus and yet nobody truly desperate for him. There's only one in this crowd who is truly going, man, he is my only hope. Man, I just got to get near to this Jesus. I gotta, I'm going to lay it all on the line to lay hold of him. There's only one in this crowd, it would seem, who's doing that. Who's touching him like that. There's only one in the crowd, we might say, who touched him with the touch of trust. There's a whole lot of trustless touch going on. But then there's one full of hope. In fact, again, in Mark's account, he tells us that as she's pressing through the crowd there, she's kind of having this inner dialogue with herself. And this is what she says. This is Mark 5, 28. If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. There's a confidence. There's a, sure, there's a desperation, yes. But there is a confidence and a trust as well. If I could just touch his garment, I will be made well. And that just convicted me. Do we come into this room with that sort of expectation, that sort of anticipation, man, that Jesus is present? Not just, ah, this is tradition, this is what I do, it's Sunday morning, here I am. No, but Jesus is here. And if I could just touch the fringe of his garment, I will find help for whatever need or struggle or difficulty I am dealing with. Is that the sort of thing we come into this room with? Man. Wouldn't that be amazing? If we do, tell you what, you're watching this story, it's an explosive thing to touch Jesus with faith like that. Here's what we read. I wonder if you noticed what Jesus says about this touch of trust. He says, in essence, it draws power out from him. I want to think about that for a moment. That power comes out from Jesus when we touch him like that. That we have access to the power of Christ through faith like that. I I don't think we're aware just how much power we have access to in Christ. I don't think a lot of us, myself included, live in light of, live in the fullness of that sort of power. Now, let me clarify this for a moment. I'm not talking about, um, maybe you're familiar with certain brands of Christianity. I'm not talking about the name it and claim it brand of Christianity. I'm not talking about the word of faith brand of Christianity that says, hey, listen, use the name of Jesus and declare whatever you want, when you want it, and it's yours. You got access to power in him, make your dreams come true now. If you got faith, 
It can happen. I don't think that's what we're talking about here. I don't think we're talking about me opening up my, my MacBook, pulling up Wells Fargo account, laying my hand on my computer and saying, in the name of Jesus, add a couple of zeros to the end of that balance. Yes, hallelujah. No, that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about Jesus as a genie. We're not talking about Jesus as a vending machine. Punch a few numbers, get what you want. We're not talking about that. We're talking about coming to the Savior who, whatever the help is, we know it's coming. We know He has it for us. Let me tell you something. Sometimes God's, God's people go poor. Can I say that? And they live in holes in the ground. That's Hebrews 11. You want to know how, how the author of Hebrews 11 try, or the, uh, the author of Hebrews tries to encourage us? He says, man, some people by faith, by faith, they were, they were stopping the mouths of lions. They were conquering kingdoms. And others, you want to know what happened? They were living in holes in the ground because they knew their hope was in heaven and that Jesus was coming or that God was coming. Sometimes God's people suffer and die. Romans 8. We looked at that last week. We are considered sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. Let him kill us. It might happen. But in the name of Jesus, we will rise. Sometimes we cry out to the Lord three times in faith. Remove this thorn of, fla- of, of fla- you know, the thorn in the flesh from us. And Jesus comes instead and says, no, 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 no. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is coming. You better believe it. But it's going to be through your weakness. You catch that? Access to power, absolutely. Right here in this room. He might heal your situation, your circumstances, or he might come in and do something crazy in your heart that sustains you in the midst of it. Either way, he will help. And the call is to touch with the touch of trust. Jerry shared with you some of his story. I don't have time to share with you all of mine, but as I got to this point in my thinking, I was recalling my own testimony and how it was physical, as so often is the case, it was physical, circumstantial brokenness that God used to bring me to that place of desperation and save me. I mean, he broke me down physically. I won't go into the details now, but this is what I want you to get. When I came into him, when I finally humbled my soul, and said, I can't do this. I need you, Jesus, help. When I finally humbled my heart and cried out for him, he didn't heal the stuff I was dealing with physically. Nothing changed physically. But I can testify that Everything changed spiritually. Like he was healing things I didn't even know I I, I was dealing with. There was a sickness I wasn't even aware of. And he was going at that. The sickness beneath the sickness was being healed. I could almost, I could care less at that point about whether or not he healed my voice or my arm or all these things that were going on. I had been brought back into relationship with my creator, now my redeemer. That 
It was amazing. Power came to me through him by faith. So am I touching him this morning like that? Am I desperate? Am I touching? Now third, am I hiding? Am I hiding? If you notice, Jesus doesn't just let this woman uh, hit and run, so to speak. She was trying, it seems, to sneak on him there, come up from behind him there, we read in verse 44, trying to stay hidden, we see in verse 47. She wanted to kind of like get healed and then get out of there. Just let me touch, remain, you know, under cover and then get out of there, get home. (laughs) But he wouldn't have it. He wouldn't let her stay in hiding. His question, who was it that touched me, addressed to the crowd, was meant to call her out. And she knows it. She's like, oh, no. It seems that she's terrified because she comes to Christ. We, we, we were told there in verse 47, trembling. I mean, this poor woman comes to him trembling. And my sense of it. If I had to guess why, we're not told exactly why. If I had to guess why trembling, why fear, what's going on there, my guess is she thinks she's about to get in trouble. I mean, her whole life, you know, at least for the last 12 years, you better not touch anybody. How could you be so selfish? You don't get to have those sorts of relationships. You pollute anyone you're around. And so she's probably like, man, this holy guy knows. He's on to me. It's not what Jesus is going to do at all, is it? It's the most amazing part of of our text, I think. Jesus isn't going to reprimand her. He's not going to talk to her about how her uncleanness spread to him or this whole crowd. Instead, it's going to be quite the opposite. He's going to talk about how his cleanness, his holiness spread to her in more ways than she's even aware. Not just physically here. He's not willing to let her just kind of get the physical healing and run. He wants that relationship with her. He's calling her out so that he can call her to himself. You see that? It's amazing. It is amazing. He hopes to communicate even more healing to her than she knows. He's going after her heart. I don't know if some of you, you might feel, um, you might feel like you're destined because of your past, because of your current failures or whatever it is, you're destined to be like a bench warmer in the kingdom of God. Like you're just always going to be second string. You're always going to be junior varsity. You're always going to be the guy that comes out, kind of mops up after the real players did the work. Some of you would just be satisfied, perhaps, to just get a little bit of grace and then go home. You know, preacher said it, God loves me. But if you're pressed, you're really not so sure that he likes you. Certainly doesn't want to be near to you. Certainly doesn't have great plans to use you. So let me just get a little bit of grace and go home. Thanks. I know my place. 
I think that's the sort of thinking that Jesus is, is, is pushing against here with this woman. I think that's what's going on. And I just want to focus your attention for a moment on that first word he speaks to her. Namely, there in verse 48, daughter. Daughter. And you've got to know, this is the only place in the Gospels where Jesus is recorded as directly addressing uh, a woman in that way. Calling her daughter. And I think in light of this woman's story, the background that we kind of unfolded a little bit, when you see kind of what it is that she's dealing with, what kind of emotional, physical, financial, all this baggage that she brings in, you can't even begin to understand the sort of healing that that single word started to work in her heart. We just can't even begin to understand what that would do in this moment. A word like this moves things around inside of you, does it not? When you come trembling before God, kind of like Jerry was talking about, thinking that, man, you're going to get the backhand. You're going to get the reprimand. And instead you get embraced. Instead, you're told, man, you are a part of the family. The smile of God is what you see. And you hear the word from his lips, daughter, or for the brothers, son. I mean, that sort of, that just... That heals you in a, in a, in a way and, and, and gets at a place in your heart that, that nothing else will. There's identity being spoken into this woman and that moment. So drugs won't get there. It can't fix you there. Achievements in your career will not fix you there. That significant other that you're longing for or some relationship won't be, they won't, you can't fix you there. Putting a couple zeros at the end of your balance won't do for you what this single word from Jesus did for this woman. Daughter. You are in the family. Just flesh this out. You're in the family. Where you are broken, I will repair you. Where you are bankrupt, I will provide. Where you are dirty, I will wash you. Where you are abandoned, I will welcome you. Where you are unloved, I will cherish you. Don't settle for mere physical healing, a hit and run. I won't let you do it. I want a relationship with you. You are my daughter. That, that's profound. And he's saying that to us this morning. Don't you get it? There's no reason to hide anymore. You are more accepted, more loved, more cherished than you could even conceive, than you ever dared to hope in Christ. Um, so 
today, if you're kind of a history buff or if you follow websites, uh, you know, theological groups like I do, like the Gospel Coalition or others, uh, you know that today is actually the, well, October 31st, 2017, is going to be the 500th year anniversary, essentially, uh, from where we typically mark the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. 500 years since Martin Luther walked up to Castle Church there in Wittenberg and, 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 and drove his 95 theses into the door, precipitating uh, things he couldn't have even imagined would come. But one of the things that we know was rediscovered in that time. One of the glorious gospel doctrines that were kind of, was kind of unearthed like an artifact of ancient times by these reformers in that time is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. The doctrine that says, man, you and I, sinners though we be, filthy though we are, bringing nothing to the table but our own mess. We can be made right with God, not with any you know, effort of our own, but simply by receiving the good works, the efforts of Christ on our behalf on the cross. That we don't have to live in this perpetual state, kind of like what, again, Jerry was sharing. On my good days, God's happy. On my bad days, he's not. I got this much time in purgatory. I got to save this many Hail Marys, and then I can get everything right, and then by the end, maybe it will be all right for me, and God will be pleased. And, and Luther and these guys come in and say, man, that's not what the Scripture says. You just fall on your face, open hands, receive Christ's righteousness, and you are made right with God here this morning, today. You're not demanding payback from you. You walk out in delight and you better believe good works will follow, but those good works are not justifying you before holy God. They never could. Only Christ. I just thought, man, what a perfect illustration of that doctrine we have here in this text. This woman brings nothing. She's so scared she's just going to get another person who's going to be mad at her for getting near. She's given everything freely in that moment by faith. She is told, daughter, your faith has made you well, or in the Greek, saved you. Go in peace. Fourth and final question. Am I... How you guys doing? You all right? You awake with me? You with me? All right. Fourth and final question. Am I waiting? Am I waiting? We cannot forget. <laughs> I've spent so much time on this woman. We can't forget that there's another brother sitting here going, um, um, Jesus, I mean, my daughter is dying here. <laughs> it's all wonderful what you're doing. Like, like calling this girl daughter and everything, that's, that's special. But my daughter is dying. <laughs> uh, can we hurry this along, this little you know, pep talk or whatever? We've got to get to my house. So Jairus is here going, man, what is going on? Really, this story has kind of been a tangent or a, a deviation or an interruption, really, from what Jesus was heading uh, out to do, as we see there in verses 41 to 42. 
Well, in the midst of Jesus doing this awesome stuff with this lady, news comes from Jairus' house. Your daughter's dead. It's too late, man. I wonder if you have ever seen God doing stuff in others' lives. Those around you, like everyone's just like walking on clouds because of Jesus and they're singing. And you're going, man, when is that going to come from me? Like, when is that going to come from me? (laughs) That's wonderful. And I rejoice with those who rejoice, kind of. But uh, what about like, have you forgotten me? No, he hasn't forgotten. No matter how distant he feels, no matter how distracted you think he is, he always shows up right on time. Always. He knows what he's doing with you. He hasn't forgotten you. He's coming for you. Let him take care of this woman over here, that person over there. He'll get to you. You wait on him, you trust So it looks like it's the end of the line for Jairus and his daughter, but Jesus keeps on moving towards the house. And when he arrives, he comes upon all these people that um, have gathered to mourn. And and he has the the audacity to look at them and say, "What, what are you doing? Wait, why is everybody so sad? Oh, oh, the the girl in there. She's just sleeping. You want me to go wake her up? Oh, you think that's funny? Oh, arise. I mean, he has an easier time raising this woman from the dead, this little girl from the dead, than I do, you know, waking up Bella in the morning for school. That's what I think it means. He takes something as final, as hopeless to us as death. Like, don't bother the teacher, this guy says, anymore, because she's dead. Ain't nothing he can do. Jesus says, no, she's not dead. Just sleep. It's just sleep to me. What you consider so final, so hopeless, just a word. Just come wake her up. You want me to do that? I'll do it. It's amazing. It's incredible. So, keep waiting on Jesus, brother, sister. He hasn't forgotten you. He's always right on time. But the, the story ends here with this closing command that is a little bit uh, difficult to understand. I, I wanted to unpack that for a moment and then I'll, I'll, I'll draw my conclusion. Um, because he, he looks at these, these parents who you got to imagine are just like, man, we got to tell the world. This is amazing. And he looks at them. He says, don't tell anyone. Did you see that there in verse 56? He charged them to tell no one what had actually happened. That might throw us, but it actually directs us towards something very significant. Very significant. We've got to remember, in Israel, around this time, there's excitement building around Jesus. Thinking, man, he's the Christ, but their understanding of the Christ is not fully in line with the scriptures. They, they're thinking he's going to bring the kingdom for them now. They're thinking he's going to fix everything for them here and now. Like immediately. Let's make him king. They have no conception in their mind. Of, of a Christ who, who goes to the cross. 
They have no understanding of the deeper mission of the Messiah to save people from their sins, from the problem beneath the problem. They want the physical stuff fixed. Jesus is doing so much more than that. He's going after the roots to what caused the physical mess in the first place. What we need to understand is that if Jesus doesn't go to the cross, he effectively has done nothing for these people here. If he doesn't go die and rise, if he doesn't go and shed his own blood, this woman who he healed here momentarily will still die in her sin, unclean. If he doesn't go die and rise as God's only child, then this dude's only child will eventually fall breathless to the dirt again. And so Jesus knows, man, it's, all this is a picture. As glorious as it is, it is a picture of realities I can only bring in by way of the cross. And so if around Israel, people are trying to make me king here and now without the cross, let's just keep this to ourselves, okay? And then you could spread it all around town when it is finished. And they'll get what I'm really up to in all of this. Um, Here's where I wanted to close. I told you that there was... Uh, an insight um, that emerges when you take these two stories together. And I'll I'll leave you with this now. Um, When we look closely at these two stories, at these two individuals who have come desperate for Jesus' help, namely this woman and Jairus, we actually come to find out they could not be more different. They could not be more different from one another. On the one hand, Jairus, we're told, is a ruler of the synagogue. Did you catch that? Verse 41, a ruler of the synagogue. This means this brother had standing in his community. This was the guy who would organize and help lead in the services in the local synagogue. Likely, he was, these rulers were typically Pharisees. I mean, he was as in as it gets. And then, I don't think you need any more from me on how out this woman was. Couldn't even come within a stone's throw of the synagogue. As out as it gets. But Jesus is bringing both together in himself. Both the the near and the far coming together in Christ. It's this wonderful picture we have in this text of what Jesus is doing in the church. Paul says in Ephesians 2.17 that Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far off and to you who were near. And this text just captures that so wonderfully. And I thought, man, that's going on in this room as well. Where there are people who like Jerry shared in his testimony, were kind of raised in the church. You've just always been near. That's your story. You knew, you knew all the Bible stories. You knew, you know, the verses. You had the Awanis badges and all these things going on. You were uh, legit when it came to church. And then somewhere in the midst of that, God got a hold of your heart, broke you down, made you desperate, saved you. And then others of you 
would fall into that far off category. Like, man, your story, you couldn't even, you couldn't even come up here and share. It would be too like rated R for the little kids. Your background is so dark and twisted and you kind of walk into this room wondering, man, do I even belong in this place where people seem to have it all together? I feel so far. I feel like, man, what am I doing here? Like this woman, what am I doing here next to Jairus at the foot of the cross? What am I doing here? But you see, somewhere in the midst of that, Jesus breaks you down, makes you desperate, and convinces you of his great love. Saves you. And then, yeah, you, when the tears kind of are washed away from your eyes and you look up, you realize, man, Wow, the near and far and everywhere in between have been brought together around the cross of Christ. That's what the church is. It's this beautiful picture, and we are that picture as well. We gather together now and sing praises to him. So let's do that. Let me pray. Jesus, you are, um, you are so good to us. We delight, we marvel, we revel in your grace the free grace that you give to sinful people. Both those that are near and religious and have been in the church and the Pharisees and those that are so far feel like, man, they're still just dealing with so much shame from where they've been, places they've frequented, stuff they've done. God, you convince us both that you love us, that you forgive us, that you free us, that we're your kids. Thank you for that. Thank you for the cross. It's in your name we pray. Amen.